0: You're listening to B.I.V. Today, the daily business podcast from B.I.V. and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Canada's first year of legalized cannabis has seen significant industrial development and investment. But along with that, we've also seen a range of regulations imposed around consumer outlets, a supply shortage, and a persistent black market that complicates the landscape. So what have we learned? What lessons can be applied to the next stage of legalization? On October 9th, this week, BIV's Cannabis One-Year-On panel examines industry opportunities, challenges, and next steps. And there's still time to get a ticket to that event. On October 17th, we celebrate BC's fastest-growing companies. Our annual Top 100 list is out. The event will be hosted at Audi Downtown Vancouver, and it's a good chance to meet and network with companies that really have seen remarkable growth over the last five years. We're talking about five-digit percentage growth. This is an event you won't want to miss. And finally, you can join us as we celebrate BC's top leadership when we host the BC CEO Awards November 13th at Fairmont Waterfront. Winning CEOs will be honored at a gala awards dinner where each winner will also share their leadership lessons to an audience of Vancouver's business community. For more information on that event, visit biv.com bc-ceo-awards. For all of our events, you can also visit biv.com events for details. The 2019 federal election is coinciding with heightened awareness and concern about climate change. A good example, the Bard Street Bridge closed this morning for yet another major climate-related protest. But even so, Clean Energy Canada says there is an untold election story, one that addresses both environmental concerns as well as concerns about the growth and health of our economy. Marin Smith is the Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada, and she joins me today to talk about The Fast Lane, a new report that highlights the growth potential of Canada's clean energy sector. Marin, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. The report argues that when we talk about energy in Canada, we're missing the bigger picture. What is that bigger picture?
1: Well, when we talk about energy, we're generally talking about fossil fuel jobs, jobs in the oil sector, pipelines. That's the conversation we have. Uh, We did this report to look at, let's look at the clean energy sector. How many jobs are there? And what's the job potential? And you know what we found is Canada's clean energy sector is where the real opportunity is for Canada. There's already 300,000 jobs in the clean energy sector across Canada in every province. Uh, if we keep the climate and clean energy policies that we have in place right now, that'll grow to over half a million jobs by 2030. Uh, so that's a, a story that we think the Canadians need to hear more about, understand more about. So that when we are moving forward, both on climate and clean energy policy, we understand what the implications are. So right now, uh, you know, we've got an election going on, as you said, and we've got three parties, uh, the Liberals, committing to keep the the solid foundation of climate policy they put in place uh, and build on it. The, the, The NDP and the Green Party are also committing to keep that in place and build on it. Uh, We've got one party, the Conservative Party, saying they're going to dismantle that policy. uh, And that's going to have implications for jobs.
0: Do we know yet what some of those implications might be? I know in this report you've done some modelling around growth if policies stay the same. But if we see some of those policies removed, any telling at this point in time how that might impact things like jobs?
1: Well, we are set to grow 160,000 jobs in the clean energy sector if we keep the energy uh, clean energy and climate policies that we have. So we're set to lose those, that, that job mm. growth. And it's not just jobs, it's investment as well. Uh, and this sector is job growth and investment are about four times, three to four times the rate of the national average. That tells you this is where the growth for this economy is for Canada. Uh, and let's talk a bit about those jobs. Um, They're in every province across the country. There are rural jobs, urban jobs, blue-collar jobs, white-collar jobs. So a real diversity of jobs and jobs that allow people to live in their communities.
0: When we look at some of the policies, both at the provincial as well as the federal level, do they get in the way at all of this growth or are they enablers and accelerators of that growth? What's a bit of the relationship between some of the policies we have now and their, their impact on the potential for this sector?
1: Yeah, that is a good question because that's the part that we feel people aren't talking about. Is so climate policies are what's driving the growth in, in this sector. Mm. Uh, so policies around energy retrofits, for example, uh, those are driving jobs in the uh, retrofit sector. So those are insulators, those are HVAC operators, those are electricians and uh, people who are putting in double pane windows. It's the policy and the support and incentives for energy retrofits that creates the growth in that sector. Um, electric vehicles are another interesting one. Electric vehicle incentives drive the uptake of electric vehicles, and Canada's actually uh, right now, already producing some electric vehicle component pieces, this sector is poised to grow. And we're also, interestingly, a leading builder of electric buses. So in Quebec, Manitoba, British Columbia, Ontario, we all have leading uh, electric bus companies uh, that are mostly exporting their electric buses. But if we put in place uh, the policies, an incentive here in Canada that's going to actually turn into more growth for that sector uh, and uptake of more electric buses in Canada. So these are win-win policies. They cut our carbon pollution, but they actually also help grow the economy. Um, another area I want to talk about is uh, energy efficiency for businesses because some of the clean tech initiatives. Uh, that the governments put in place and the regulations that require less pollution or even putting a price on pollution, those drive industry and businesses to be more energy efficient. That means they end up saving money. So these policies are going to help reduce costs for homeowners uh, and put money in their pockets and also reduce costs for businesses, uh, making Canadian businesses more competitive. So. As a nation, not only, you know, clearly, there's people out in the streets, as you said, today protesting, uh, wanting more climate action. Every poll is telling us that the environment and climate action is top of mind for the vast majority of Canadians, three out of four, four out of five Canadians want this kind of action. And these kind of policies are gonna reduce our climate um, pollution, but they are gonna grow the clean energy sector And jobs. And as I said, jobs in every province. Uh, So it's it's a good news story and one that we're hoping that uh, Canadians are going to understand a bit more about as this election goes on.
0: Mm -hmm. In your view, how important is it to have federal policies that enable some of this innovation versus just focusing on policies that do the same, but at the provincial level?
1: The value of the federal policies is they drive change across the country, Uh, so provincial policies and federal policies will do the same thing. Uh, Right now, we've just seen in Ontario what happened when we get a government in place that really uh, their first days in power, they started to cut the climate action policies in very short order, they lost 6,000 jobs and a half a billion dollars of investment into their province. Uh, fortunately, the federal government stepped in to try to back up some of those programs to keep it going. So that is the value of federal policy. Also, it helps create uh, you know, similarity across the country and that makes it better for business. So if the price on carbon is the same across the country or regulations about buildings, uh, fuels, et cetera, it just makes it much more efficient for there to be federal policies. Uh, but both provinces, you know, where we've really seen leadership uh, in the past has been from the provinces. Uh, Canadians don't understand, I don't think, how much uh, this federal government has put in place they put in place a, a clean fuel standard policy, which is going to drive down the carbon solution from the gasoline that's getting used. Uh, the price on carbon's got a lot of talk, uh, more than perhaps needed, uh, but they put in place the electric vehicle incentive, which has really spurred the uptake of electric vehicles in the country. Uh, they've also put in place energy efficiency, retrofit programs, other business that. Uh, programs and support for tech, So they've actually created a very good foundation of climate policy that we need to make sure doesn't get taken down. And, and that's really our concern is we need to ensure that we elect a government on October 21st that is going to keep climate action going, not rip apart what's already in place, keep that in place and build on it. And that's going to build, you know, the the climate action that this country wants, but it's going to build a solid base of jobs and investment coming into the country. You know, and and we've seen, you know, our our modeling shows that those fossil fuel jobs, they're going to go down by about 50,000, that's primarily because of automation, Um, but these fossil fuel jobs, they aren't going to fall off a cliff. They aren't going to end overnight and all the workers are going to be out of work. This is an energy transition we're talking about. We keep the climate policy, keep building on it. That's going to keep growing the clean energy sector jobs. And we need a solid transition plan for fossil fuel workers as we go through the transition, you know, finding some of them may want retraining into the clean energy sector. Others may want transition into other sectors. Uh, But Mm -hmm. there's time to do that. But really, we're seeing globally because of the... The price of renewables globally, price of electric vehicles and batteries, the combination of all of that has really spurred the uptake of clean uh, energy around the world. And that's only going to continue. And meanwhile, you know, the the fossil fuel investment hasn't been coming into Canada. And that's mostly because uh, it's going to shale oil uh, that's gives you a faster return on your money uh, in the United States and other parts of the world. And so there's, you know, we talk a lot about pipelines, but there's really other global factors that are driving investment out of Canada's oil sector, and and those likely aren't going to change. So uh, it's likely, it's risky for the country to keep so focused on the oil and gas sector. As I said, it's not going to end overnight. But the real opportunity for Canada is investing in and keeping the clean energy sector going.
0: Mm -hmm. To that point, we often hear politicians argue that we can have it all. We can have meaningful climate action. We can grow our economy. We can do that by investing in clean tech and new technologies and clean energy and innovation. But also while we support traditional resource development, do you see a path forward that sees us as a country managing all of that successfully, or is the argument that we really need to start shifting away from the traditional fossil fuel industry and putting more of our attention and resources into a new and growing sector?
1: Well, I, I would say that we have put a lot of focus, we've put a lot of investment and intention and subsidies into the oil sands sector and the fossil fuel sector to get it off the ground in Canada. Uh, you know that happened over the past 30, 40 years. Uh, now it is time for us to focus on this new emerging sector, and that's what Canada does. You know we put a lot of investment into the pharmaceutical industry or the aeronautical industry, it's just like the oil sands industry. And the time is now for the clean energy sector you know there there is global momentum around uh, this shift. Uh, Canada's in the game we're not too late, but we will be if we spend another four or five years debating about which one we want to focus on and so we need to ensure that we are uh, doing our to help that sector grow and a lot of that is policy and regulation and legislation uh, from the federal government from the provinces Uh, and another good thing about this sector is it's really where younger generations want to work Uh, Mm -hmm. and so I think that there's a great opportunity for Canada Uh, we need to make sure that we have governments that see this opportunity and seize it and that means continuing with climate action and listening to what people want.
0: Yeah. Within the clean energy sector, because it is fairly broad, what are some of the opportunities you see Canada in a really good position at this point in time to take advantage of? What are some of the perhaps novel technologies you see being developed in this country at this point in time as a result of some of the policy frameworks we have in place?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, we have a we have a very strong clean tech sector in Canada that really punches above its weight. So, uh, in San Francisco, there's an organization that puts out the top global 100 clean tech companies every year. Uh, last year, six were from uh, sorry, 12 were from Canada, six were from British Columbia, and I think you get and generally that is what happens. You know, if there's 10 five are from British Columbia. So I think we've seen that good climate policy, and we've had that in Canada for quite a few years, you know, more than a decade, starting with Gordon Campbell. Good climate policy drives your clean tech sector to innovate, to find technology, to reduce carbon pollution, and that drives uh, successful businesses. And and we're seeing that here in BC. Transportation is one, so I look at uh, Corvus Energy, In Richmond, that's producing batteries for electric ferries. Most of those are being sold in Norway right now, hopefully to Canada. We've started to buy a few, so that's great news. Um, We also have, as I mentioned, electric bus technology, electric vehicles, and that sector is set to grow 14 times by 2030. So there's there's one opportunity. Um, Energy efficiency in our natural resource sector is another one. Uh, and so, if we look at mining, for example, Canada's opened the first all electric mine in Ontario, Borden, Ontario. So, completely uh, all the machines being run uh, on electricity, uh, electric vehicles, uh, and electric trucks are coming on board as well. Uh, so, that not only reduces their carbon pollution, but it's made it a much healthier mine to work in. Uh, So that's an interesting offshoot because it doesn't have all the off-gassing. Other Mm -hmm. energy efficiency technologies in our natural resource sector um, are incredibly valuable or finding ways to produce biofuels and renewable fuels out of our forest sector products, for example. So there's an interesting way for Canada to combine our natural resource advantage and our clean technologies and create some win-win uh, new businesses and then I can't speak enough about you know in this number 300,000 today grow to over half a million 560,000 by 2030 um, a big piece of the jobs are in wasting less energy wasting less energy energy efficiency and new technologies are ready for prime time now and that's reducing energy in homes and buildings and businesses Uh, so some basics like energy retrofits others are building zero emission buildings and that is a very uh, exciting new area because we have the technology to build buildings today that are efficient and have no emissions Uh, and in Vancouver there's a condo building that's already up a zero emission condo building people living there are paying 90% less for their energy bills today already. Yeah. And so, (laughs) like, you think about it. Why build leaky houses? You know, why not use some of these new technologies and build houses that don't waste energy? Because the best energy used is the energy that we save. Mm -hmm. And And so, yeah, wasting less energy. It's, uh, It's an exciting New area, <laughs> not sexy, and that's been its problem over time. Energy efficiency is never sexy. And I gotta say, you look at an electric vehicle, you look at some insulation for a house, electric vehicles are a little more sexy. Um, but both of them are gonna save money for people. Uh, you know, the operating cost of an electric vehicle. Here in BC, BC Hydro has been putting out the stats for a family that usually pays about $170 a month in gasoline. They had an electric vehicle; they'd be paying twenty dollars a month for fuel.
0: That I so, think is something that hits home, given the price of gas in recent months here in Metro Vancouver, for sure.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I I got one a few years ago with the job I have. I figured I'd better be driving one and see what it's like. I've got kids; they play soccer, basketball. I've got them all in the back, it's Nissan Leaf. It's super comfortable, absolutely efficient. Uh, So great car to drive, saving me money, zero polluting.
0: (laughs) Lots of exciting opportunities in the sector. Maren, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about the report as well as clean energy in Canada.
1: Great. Well, thanks for having me. And I really encourage everyone to think about their vote on October 21st. We have to make sure we have a government that's going to continue with climate action.
0: That's Marin Smith, Executive Director of Clean Energy Canada. The report we were talking about is the Fast Lane and you can find that on their website. We're moving from climate change to another area that has some federal party attention. That would be housing, but more specifically, affordability. We also have some new data out on how the regional housing market has been performing. Every couple of weeks, Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group, joins the show to talk all things housing, and he joins me today with some insight on these issues. Jason, as always, good to have you on the show.
2: My pleasure.
0: Let's start with what's been happening in the local market. New stats from the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver show home sales in the region up just over 46% year over year for the month of September. We've talked a lot about normalization in the market and what we might see this fall. Are we seeing a continuation of that normalization trend?
2: Yeah, I think so. We we talked about the stats back in August as being certainly an encouraging sign, um, picking up significantly uh, from the year before and even from months prior, um, earlier in the, in the year. Uh, and we certainly seem to have seen that trend continue on into September, which is encouraging.
0: And of course, as, as you always point out, to really understand what's going on in the market, we kind of have to go beyond just looking at Greater Vancouver and drill down both on product type, but also by municipality. Let's start with product type. What are some of the things you've been seeing in that regard?
2: Well, the, the interesting, um, the interesting trend is that they're pretty similar amongst all. I sort of went through the stats and, um, you know, we've surprisingly, when we spoke, uh, in August, I, I sort of said, I I think this is the sign of things to come with the caveat being that, that we might see a real jump in, in, uh, in listings, uh, come September, traditionally a more active month, uh, people will sometimes hold off listing their home through the summer and wait for September. And so, I was a little a little leery of potentially a big jump there, and that that it might you know cause the market to to just stall a little bit. But what we actually saw across all all uh, property types was that listings actually dropped slightly on you know condos, townhouses, and single family from August to September, which surprised me a bit. Sales were up, listings were down. Um, Um, which is not what I would have expected. I would have expected listings to actually increase. Um, So needless to say, you know, it it certainly helped uh, bring everything even more so into that balanced uh, category or balanced part of the market with condos starting to edge back up a little bit into a seller's market as a result. So um, a little surprising on that front. And and when compared to September of last year, what I was was reminded of and looking at these stats, September of last year really wasn't a very good year. I mean, that percentage of 47 a uh, 47% increase is sounds significant, but it's really in contrast to what was a pretty dismal September last year.
0: Yeah, we always have to keep in mind what the baseline year was because we've certainly seen some pretty mm-hmm. big swings year over year, but always in relation to what happened the year before. What would you attribute that slight decline to that caught you off guard a little bit? Do we know what might be behind that?
2: I, I don't, actually. I mean, you know, we're we're in an interesting marketplace here and that this this tends to be everybody's final destination so you know it's it it's not driven by people leaving the province that's for sure you know we've, we've still got uh, very strong net immigration here so um, you know listings tend to be people who are or looking to make a, a move uh, either a, a downsize or perhaps move up or um, you know moving communities for one reason or another but it's um so it is a little unpredictable for that from that perspective um, I just I just would have expected that September would have been a busier month for listings, and so uh, I don't have a a reason for it per se. Um, It it just seems to you know buck the traditional trend of, of, of you know. Listings in September being higher than the uh, summer months.
0: Yeah. Even anecdotally, do you think people are coming around to maybe getting back into the market either as a seller or as a buyer? Because we've spoken quite a bit about the hesitancy and the nervousness perhaps about getting into a market where there was so much change going on. Do you think that that's starting to give way a little bit or is there still some caution out there?
2: Yeah, a bit of both. The the, the dinner timetable I think has changed a little bit to, you know, away from that, oh, you know, you can't it's a horrible time to buy. You know, that it tends to be people pile onto that when the market seems to be uh in a softening uh, stage. I think we've moved past that into oh, I think there's opportunities. Oh, the market's okay. I mean that that tends to be more the um uh, the theme of the conversation around people's dinner tables these days. Um with a very strong Underlying sense of caution, I and I think that just comes from you know it continues to be a very expensive real estate market. Um, um, affordability is still an issue. Um, we've got a federal election coming, so what does that mean for people? Are there going to be changes yet again? That they you know there's been a lot of changes in terms of of, of policy and taxation, whether it be for your. For, for first-time buyers trying to get in, you know, is that going to bring about some change? Should I wait? Is there going to be a new program? Or what about buying that second home or that vacation home? Are we going to look at yet another taxation measure coming in place? So I do think that that might be playing into people's psych- psychology a little bit too around buying today. But that the general trend is that it feels a little more um, yeah, steady and predictable now than it did six months
0: ago. Hmm. Looking at the latest stats for September, specifically for municipalities in the region, is there anything that jumps out to you about activity in any one or two pockets within Greater Vancouver?
2: Yeah, actually, you know, I I looked at the stats and, you know, some of the neighborhoods and and the price points that seemed um, disproportionate. You know, you look at single family sales. Um, Vancouver East jumps off the page at me. 109 of 755 sales happened in, in East Vancouver in the single-family market. Um, it's a big number, not surprising. Uh, large inventory of single-family homes, very desirable, emerging neighborhood. Um, and so 14% of total single-family homes in Metro uh, sold in East Vancouver. And, and interesting is, is the price points that they sell at, 900 to 1.5 Million makes up almost half of the sales in single family. So, obviously, being in that price range, pretty critical if you're a seller. Uh, That's where the buyers seem to be focused right now. Um, On the townhome side, you know, 400 to 900,000 making up 75% of all townhome sales, with Richmond leading the way there. Also, kind of a stat that jumped off the page. And same with condos. Actually, interestingly enough, condos and townhomes both uh 72 and 73% of those sales uh, respectively happening between 400 and 900,000. So obviously that mm-hmm. is the sweet spot in the market for all multifamily. Um and with condos Vancouver West leading the way by a large margin uh, margin almost uh, uh 26% of the sales in condos happening in Vancouver West. That's, you know, not uncommon that's primarily due to just the the, um, the number of, of multifamily condo units in Vancouver West relative to the rest of the marketplace. But again, um, a really interesting sign that there's there's a lot happening and in, in, in where those price points are, 73% of them happening in four hundred to $900,000 range. So that's certainly where you want to be if you're a seller of a condo.
0: That's really interesting. Looking at the election, because I like to grill you about some of the issues when it comes to housing, we've seen some mm-hmm. policies put out there by different parties. I think generally speaking, affordability is a key plank in the platforms of all major federal parties. But what are some of the things that jump out to you on the housing or construction or development front?
2: Um, well, there's a, there's been a few parties that have that have um, floated the notion of extending the amortization period uh, for first time home buyers um, to 30 years. I think that's maybe the most interesting one because it was something that, that is pulled, that was pulled back. Uh, I think we got as long as 40 years and it was rolled back to 35 to 30 and now obviously back to 25. Uh, that increasing of amortization probably has the single greatest impact on affordability in terms of somebody's monthly payment. It really, really does affect the, um, uh, you know, the, the budget uh, on a month-to-month basis. So um, both, the, both the NDP and the Conservative Party have, have stated that they would intend to, to bring that back. I think that's a smart move. I do think that that will help. Um, it is for first-time buyers. Um, and then, uh, of course, the Conservatives um, committing, committing to addressing the stress test. I don't know exactly what that means adjusting the stress test um but it sounds like they're aiming to to again target the first time buyer and and allow them a little more flexibility with that and trying to uh, to get them into the marketplace um I would say that's generally a positive thing, and they're also talking about eliminating it all altogether on refinancing um that seems to me to be a no brainer if someone's been making their payments on their mortgage I would I would hope that they wouldn't have a situation where they're not able to, to renew their mortgage because of the stress test. So that that's obviously, in my opinion, a, a no-brainer. Um, and then from the, from the Liberals, I mean, the one notable thing here on the, on the Liberals is, is this national speculation tax that they're uh, looking to introduce. And of course, I'm not going to be a, a fan of this one, um, just because I, I simply think we're overtaxed generally. And nonetheless, you know every time one of these taxes come in, there's a, there's a whole bunch of end, uh, unintended targets of it. And we've seen it over and over and over again. You know, it's a, a satellite family that's bought a vacation property or, or, um, you know, someone who lives half the year somewhere else, you know, you get all these situations where, you know, you're trying to address speculation and that's really, you know, you get all these people that get caught up with it, uh, who, who aren't speculators and who have invested in communities who only exist because of, uh, you know, vacation style, um, uh, resort ownership or what have you. And you, so you blanket the whole country with a tax like this. And, and to me, it's certainly, uh, I think it, it's just a discouraging investment here. And I don't think we're in a position of nationally or, or even locally that we, we want to be discouraging investment. Um, it's, we, we need to, we, we live in a global world and certainly housing is a major issue. But I don't think that blanketing the country with a, with a spec tax is the way to, to, to address the issue.
0: Mm. Has there been anything that really jumps out to you, policy-wise, that addresses the supply side of the equation?
2: No, no, not at all. I mean, the, the, you know, the NDP party has, has proposed uh, uh, waiving GST on the on the production of new affordable rental units. Now, that is the key term there, affordable rental units, because uh, of course it begs the question: Well, well, what is that? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. And we certainly as an industry have lobbied pretty hard that, that GST be addressed and if not eliminated altogether on the production of all rental housing. And I think that that's the one thing that that um, I struggle with when I read, you know, these types of policies is that they seem to very, to target the few as opposed to coming up with policies that, that address the many. And, and um, as great as some of these programs are, whether they be, at the municipal level or even, like we're talking about now, federal, federal party uh, level, they're, they're so aimed at just a few, and that might be the first-time buyers, but really, if we look across our country, everybody's needing help right now in terms of housing affordability. And so, a program that targets you know affordable rental, yes, that's great, but I think that there's a much bigger issue at play here, and that is housing for the other 95%.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, affordable in Vancouver, Toronto is a very different thing than, say, affordability in Edmonton and Winnipeg too, right? There's no single Absolutely. line of affordability. Um, mm-hmm. Could something like eliminating GST, that tax on rental housing, would that potentially make the difference between a developer saying, nope, can't do it, and now saying, okay, it's economically viable? Is that enough to tip the scale?
2: Absolutely. So, so GST. You know, when you talk about building rental in Vancouver, for example, the thresholds for um, a GST rebate uh, on on new rental housing are the same as the as, as purchasing new housing for uh, principal use. So it's three hundred fifty thousand, sliding scale to four hundred fifty thousand. Most of the rental units that we produce on a valuation basis in Vancouver exceed the four hundred fifty thousand, which means we're paying full rate five percent. As a capital cost uh, upfront on the construction of every new rental housing unit, um, so you can imagine how big that price. And it, so on a, on a typical rental building here in Vancouver, that that number goes into the millions quite often, um, and of course gets passed on through our pro in in the um, with with higher rents that we need in order to make our our, um, our our projects viable. So either it becomes viable, and you have to push rent higher to, to do it. Or you feel like the market's not willing to bear it and it doesn't get built, which is certainly not, house- not helping the, uh, the rental housing costs around our city.
0: Jason, it's always a pleasure having you on. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Always my pleasure. Thanks.
0: That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. All of our episodes are also available at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.